0: Section 71 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies, An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases, by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombow. Suicide Part Three. COLVA caresses PART 2 While the captain lay dying upon the sidewalk, it was observed by the officer who discovered him that his coat and vest were unbuttoned, suggesting the idea that they had been violently torn open at the hands of an assassin. When the body was prepared for inspection and autopsy, the clothing worn by the deceased passed into the custody of the chief of police the removal of this clothing was effected in a room at the police station in which were a number of tramps and it is supposed that some one of them stole the pantaloons as unfortunately they were not afterwards to be found it is believed that they were torn in front at the point where the inner suspender button was attached the rent extending downward several inches the suspenders were not taken with the pantaloons and these afford an indication of the manner in which the tearing was done. In one of the buttonholes of the suspenders was found fixed a button that was torn or blown off from the pantaloons, evidently by the discharge of the pistol, as upon the suspender at that place were noticed the marks of gunpowder, and the marks also of the scorching from the fire occasioned by the discharge." The remaining clothing consisted of a black broadcloth frock coat and vest of the same material, a navy blue overcoat of not very stout fabric, a wool undershirt, and a white overshirt with linen bosom. The shirts were burned or torn at points corresponding with the place where the bullet entered the body, but neither of the coats nor the vest bore any marks of the bullet's entrance. Both coats, as well as both shirts, showed rents posteriorly where the bullet tore through them in its exit from the body the point of exit was below the vest so that was wholly uninjured the inside lining upon its left side was found to be blackened as though by smoke and a pretty sharply defined line limiting the discoloration by smoke would seem to indicate that the left side of the unbuttoned vest was folded back at the time of the shooting a careful inspection of the buttons and buttonholes of the two coats revealed no evidence of a violent wrenching open of these garments. The buttonholes had the worn appearance of careful and frequent use. The middle buttonhole of one of the coats had the stitching nearly worn out, so that any sudden strain with the button in place would have met no resistance except the well-worn edge of cloth. This particular button was always worn fastened, there was no breaking of even a single thread of the cloth, no evidence of a forcible tearing open of the coat by an attacking party. The closest examination of the garments failed to show the slightest proof of any struggle. No part of either coats or vest had the appearance of having been subjected to any unnatural pulling, not a seam was parted. The shirt was much burned at the place where the bullet entered the burning having been caused by the combustion of powder, a fact which shows conclusively the immediate proximity of the muzzle at the time. The appearance of the woolen undershirt was of even greater significance. At a point corresponding with the burnt hole in the shirt was a very large hole in the undershirt. The latter was of a material which does not readily burn, and the ragged edges of the hole in the undershirt were not even scorched, or in the least blackened. The missing pieces were violently torn away by the great force of the explosion at the instant of the discharge. No evidences were discernible about the cravat or collar that there had been a struggle of any kind. In one of the pockets was found a knife having a dull, ragged edge, apparently having been subjected to rough usage." It will be borne in mind that the small leather satchel had been cut open with an exceedingly dull knife. On his person were found also about $2.70 in money, the key to his stateroom on the steamer, a card upon which was written the captain's full name, and a memorandum-book. An autopsy was held sixteen hours after death, in which the following wounds and appearances were noted a gunshot wound by a bullet its point of entrance being six inches below the plane of the left nipple and three and one-half inches from the median line orifice of the wound five-eighths by three-fourths inches edges inverted discoloured darkly neighbouring skin blistered as though by heat bullet passed between the eighth and ninth ribs of the left side it produced a longitudinal slit in the stomach five inches long and tore through the body of the fourth lumbar vertebra and the spinal cord making its exit at that point close inspection of the surface of the body showed absolutely no marks of recent injury other than the wounds produced by the bullet in whatever light we may regard the teachings of this post-mortem examination it will be well to observe in passing that there were none of the usual evidences of a mortal struggle the shattered and bent sword-cane and the unbuttoned clothing naturally would lead to a search for marks of violence upon the person such as are produced by grips blows violent exertions the characteristic evidences of a rough assault not a finger-mark not a scratch was found nothing but the fearful wound which in its blistered condition showed immediate contact of the weapon at the time of its discharge and which also in its course Gave evidence of the terrific violence of the explosion. There is no reason for the supposition that a man like the deceased, who all his days had been accustomed to adventures and scenes of personal violence, would have allowed an assassin, or any number of them, to hold his clothing open and shoot him to death without a desperate struggle, and it is in evidence that no such struggle took place one of the most remarkable circumstances about the event is that no sounds of a struggle were heard as there would have been it would seem if a murder was committed and such a struggle had taken place as to break the cane and bend the sword the testimony of some witnesses on this point is very important and interesting a lady directly in front of whose house the tragedy occurred makes the following statement on the night of the shooting, at ten o'clock, I went up to my room to sew. I sat with a bright light, both shutters open, though the windows were closed, the light so placed that it shone clearly into the street. I continued sewing till half-past ten, when I undressed and sat down at the edge of the bed. At this time I heard a slight sound as of a stick hitting inside my closet door this sound was a very slight one and more like the breaking of a stick than like footsteps the reader will bear in mind what has been related with reference to the splintered bamboo cane it occurred about twenty minutes it seemed to me before the shooting on this account i didn't put out my light but stood up braided my hair and ripped the skirt off a dress i then changed the position of the light out of range of the window so that it did not shine so plainly on the street i then turned down the light and lay down upon the bed this was to the best of my judgment fifteen minutes before the report i then heard the report of the pistol and became so confused that for a time i was unable to collect my thoughts having listened for a little while i covered my head with the bedclothes while my head was thus covered listening all the while i heard three distinct groans i then removed the bedclothes from my head and heard two more groans these were the only sounds i heard after the report until the people arrived at the gate near which the body lay this lady was within a few yards of where the shooting occurred and her attention having been arrested by what sounded to her like the breaking of a stick she was timidly on the qui vive for every noise had there been a call for help or other sound at the time it is certain that she would have heard it another lady residing in the corner house at the main street end of clinton street says i had been in bed about five minutes when i heard a loud report of a firearm i jumped out of bed and hastened to the window where i could get a plain view of the street but saw no one running or passing out of the street nor did i hear any outcry or sound of a struggle or conversation on clinton street with the exception of the groans of a man who proved to be captain colva caresses i could distinctly see the policeman as he turned into clinton street after the report but i saw no one pass out either end of the street my room is on the ground floor the window was open but the blinds closed i was wide awake when the shot was fired and was at the window in a very few seconds another lady in the same house corroborates the above statement as to occurrences on clinton street saying that she was awake when the shot was fired and rushed immediately to the window the reader will bear in mind that clinton is a short street and is lighted at each end the lamps are situated so that the women who hurried to the windows as stated above could see the entire length of the street, and see the policeman who came in at the water street end. Unquestionably, they commanded a full view of their end of the street, and had any murderer attempted to escape in that direction, they would have seen him, while the policeman would not have failed to notice any attempt to escape from his end of the street. Again, if a murderer threw away the pistol, secreted the powder-horn, dropped the box of caps and the other articles which were afterwards found as has been stated it would seem as though he could not have time to do all this after the shooting without having been seen by these eyewitnesses it becomes a matter of legitimate inquiry to account for the time consumed by captain Colva cresses after leaving the hotel and the drug store for the boat for him to go through clinton street was in distance quite as direct a route as any but not the usual one and the captain was quite familiar with the way he having passed frequently over the ground between the hotels and boat he could not have gone directly to the place of shooting for that was but a few minutes walk while fully twenty-five elapsed before the report of the pistol was heard how is the time consumed to be accounted for if the tragic scene was his own planning and performing then we find that for him to have gone from the drug store to the place where the satchel was found and thence to the spot where the body lay would have consumed about twelve minutes provided he kept walking all the time but the half hour that is to be accounted for is amply sufficient for a man who was deliberately walking and meditating upon the deed and who selecting a place where the bag should be found stopped to cut it open after taking out the pistol it contained he would still have time to arrange the requisite details in clinton street to show the probable movements of the captain during this time we have the testimony of a man who was occasionally employed on the steamboat and who left the wharf that night at about twenty minutes before nine o'clock when he had gone a short distance he met a stranger who inquired of him as to the way subsequently that night he met the stranger again and gives this statement i was passing down main street between clinton and union when i saw a man ahead of me going towards clinton street he stepped out to the right on the curb to let me pass it was so singular an action that i looked at him and he looked at me i noticed it was the same man whom i had seen upon leaving the boat he had a small satchel which appeared to be hung by a string about his neck, and carried a cane and umbrella, and seemed to be arranging something in his left breast with his right hand. I passed him, turning down Clinton Street, he following slowly. I turned about when I was partway down the street, and saw him passing over and going down Main. He appeared to hesitate at the lower corner, whether to come down Clinton Street or not. When I had been in my house about twenty minutes, I heard a loud report like that of a rifle, and soon afterwards recognized the dead man as the one whom I had seen twice before that evening. Upon opening a box of special deposit, which Captain Culver-Caresses kept in the vault of the First National Bank at Litchfield, there were found certain memoranda, which at first were supposed to afford a clue to the mystery. It unexpectedly appeared that the captain had been the possessor of a very considerable amount of wealth, which he had invested in stocks and bonds, and it was conjectured that he had the certificates of these bonds within the small satchel which he so watchfully guarded while in Bridgeport. The inference was that he had been stealthily tracked and followed by persons who knew he had these bonds, the bag snatched from him after resistance, which resulted in his being shot to death, and the bonds hurriedly abstracted by the murderers and robbers who left the empty satchel where it was afterwards found. The following is a transcript of these memoranda in the order of their dates. September 7, 1871, 10 Central Pacific, 1st Mortgage, 6%, $10,000.00. 8. Union Pacific First Mortgage, 6%, $8,000. 16 U.S. 520s, 67, January and July, $16,000. 6. State of Connecticut, 6s, $6,000. 5. Danville, Urbana, Pekin, and Bloomington Railroad, $5,000. 400. Erie, $40,000. 150. Pacific Mail, $15,000. In a side memorandum, the statement is made of Erie, bought for 19, sold for 65, and several other memoranda relative to purchase and sale. The whole list is scratched, altered, and interlined. Beneath is a statement bearing the date of April 4, 1872, which is also interlined, altered, and scratched. 10 Central Pacific First Mortgage, 6%, Ten thousand dollars eight Union Pacific First Mortgage, six percent, eight thousand five Danville, Urbana, Pekin, and BRR, five thousand six Connecticut Sixes, six thousand twenty one Rochester Water Loan Bonds, twenty one thousand twelve Connecticut Valley Railroad, twelve thousand twenty nine U.S. Five Twenties, sixty seven, twenty nine thousand. Seven U.S. five twenties sixty five seven thousand ten Chippewa Valley Railroad one thousand three Alabama eights three thousand a third perfected list reads as follows May thirteenth eighteen seventy two the following are the securities which I now hold and those marked with the letter D I shall on my arrival in New York Place in the safe deposit number one twenty Broadway Equitable Building for convenience. D ten Central Pacific first mortgage sixes, ten thousand dollars. D eight Union Pacific first mortgage sixes, eight thousand. D twelve Connecticut Valley first mortgage sevens, twelve thousand. D twenty nine U S Gov five twenties, twenty nine thousand. D 15 US gov 520s 15000 D 6 Connecticut 6s 6000 5 Danville Urbana P&B Railroad 5000 10 Chipog Valley 1000 21 Rochester Water Loan 21000 I also hold life insurance to the amount of $193000 and coupons due 1st of May on US bonds G.M.C. Of these bonds, it was learned that the Rochester Water Loan, the Chapaug Valley, and the Danville Railroad were in the bank at Litchfield, and were of no value whatever. His box at the bank in which he kept his memorandums and papers was quite full, and this circumstance suggested the inquiry as to where he had kept his other bonds marked D. A letter was received by the safe deposit company in the latter part of May, requesting the company to hold a safe at the captain's disposal, but he was in New York one day subsequent to the date on which the letter was written, and did not visit the safe deposit office. It looked somewhat strange that only his bonds and papers of so little or no value should have been kept at the bank. It will be observed that the memorandums do not indicate the numbers to any of the bonds though it would seem that a man who actually held such securities and was about to deposit them with such care as to leave a memorandum at home would be particular about the numbers owing to this omission it was impossible to trace anything but the twelve connecticut valley bonds they had been issued but a short time and a protracted thorough and complete search developed the fact that Captain culver Caresses never owned any of these bonds. The investigation as to Captain culver caresses ownership of the bonds covered a broad field of inquiry, and many important facts were gathered. The evidence touching this feature of the inquiry was submitted by the insurance companies to Judge McCurdy, who tersely epitomizes the facts and expresses his views as follows. Quote, the obtaining such an immense amount of insurance, making so small a payment of premium, and dying immediately after, create alone a suspicion of fraud, but the suspicion is greatly increased by the accompanying circumstances. He, of course, was fully aware that, to remove the suspicion, it was necessary that he should appear to be possessed of a large property to justify the amount of insurance, and to enable him to meet the premiums it was with this object that he seems to have prepared the memorandum of bonds evidently and indeed ostentatiously to be exhibited after his death it will be observed that this kind of property is most difficult to be traced bonds having no earmarks this list was deliberately prepared and revised with slight changes three times it amounted each time to about one hundred thousand dollars and the last two memorandums contain twelve bonds of $1,000 each, in all $12,000, to the Connecticut Valley Railroad Company. Now it has been ascertained beyond all question from the parties who held all the bonds of the company, and have held them from their issue, that he could not by any possibility have ever held a single bond of this road in his possession." This fact stamps the character of falsehood and fraud upon the whole list. There is no reason to suppose that he held any of the bonds which he names, except those of the Chapag Road of no value, the Danville Road, and the Rochester water bonds of no value. There is no reason to believe that he at any time, except when he drew his prize money, was worth more than $10,000, including his place at Litchfield he had no visible means of making money his salary was barely sufficient to support his family his prize money seventeen thousand three hundred thirty eight dollars was invested and lost in rochester water bonds the pretence that he made a large sum by an eerie investment is proved to have been a sham his family and friends knew of no amount of property mr holmes who kept his papers and accounts and must have been acquainted with his circumstances says he never was worth more than eight thousand or ten thousand dollars he borrowed small sums from time to time of the lichfield bank apparently to support his family and repaid them when his salary became due when he attempted to borrow a large sum he had no collaterals to offer as security except the worthless water bonds and he died in debt to the lichfield bank without a sufficient security. He kept no known deposits or accounts with bankers or brokers. His business was principally done through Messrs. Sisko and Co., and the transactions, except in one instance amounting to $4,000, were very small, running from $300 to $1,000. His sworn assessment list shows less than $400. If he had bonds to the amount of $100,000, where did he buy them where did he get the money to pay for them how long had he held them where did he keep them and why not continue to keep them as before where did he cash his coupons at the instance of his family the president of the board of brokers publicly requested that any persons who had furnished him any bonds or assisted him in any bond exchanges or negotiations should make it known but there was no response the most skilful detectives have been unable to discover any such transactions the whole pretense is a manifest and palpable falsehood assuming it therefore as a fact beyond all question that he was not at the time of his death worth more than ten thousand dollars it follows that he could not have taken out insurance to the amount of two hundred thousand dollars in good faith and for an honest purpose his first premiums, amounting to nearly $11,000, would have absorbed all his means, including his house, and if he had lived to the age he had a right to expect, the aggregate of his premiums would have reached the neighborhood of $150,000, exclusive of interest. He was evidently aware that his taking such an unusual amount of insurance would be a source of suspicion, and so he gave as a reason for it that he had a suit pending at Washington against the government involving about the same amount, and as he might lose that, he wished to secure himself in this sum. Now he had, in fact, no suit for any sum at all. He had only applied to the proper department to make an abatement of the assessment, about $1,700, on his prize money, which was refused. End quote on the morning of his departure from lichfield to proceed upon the last journey he was to take as reported by his own family he betrayed more than ordinary emotion and gave evidence of a depth of feeling quite unusual three times did he return to bid them adieu and the third repetition of his fond farewell called forth the remark why one would think you expect never to return he was strongly attached to his family and his domestic relations were those of an affectionate and happy household. This fact has been published as tending to discredit the theory of suicide, and it has been alleged also that there was entire absence of motive for such a deed. When it shall become known what constitutes sufficient motive for the act, then and not till then can we truthfully make such declarations." The mind of the person who commits the deed is the sole judge of the sufficiency of the reason, and persons meditating suicide always keep their own counsel. It has been alleged further that the pistol being found across a street some thirty-five feet in width was conclusive of human agency other than that of the deceased. A murderer may intentionally leave the weapon near his victim with the design of diverting attention from the true manner of death, Yet in such cases, the weapon is usually left near the body. The distance which this pistol lay from the body can be accounted for in two ways. One, it could have been thrown by an assassin, and this explanation might be considered if there was any evidence showing that an assassination had been committed. Two, if heavily overloaded and placed by a suicide against the elastic walls of the chest, and thus fired the recoil of such a weapon in the opinion of persons competent to judge would have been quite sufficient to cast it forty fifty or sixty feet away that it was heavily loaded is proved by the loudness of the report arousing the whole neighborhood and by the course of the ball this bullet passed through the body through the corner of a picket a part of the fence and then it struck a doorstep directly upon a nail driving the nail before it with prodigious power we have already described the pistol it certainly was not such a one as highway robbers make use of in these days of perfected weapons it was so large as not to be easily concealed or carried it was of such peculiar workmanship it surely would be traced to suspicious ownership the report of its discharge was like that of a small cannon its lock was rusty and difficult to work, altogether, the least possible offensive weapon of the modern city robber. It is well known that suicides frequently make use of some old, useless pistol or a gun barrel merely, and furthermore, they are apt to overload them. It is not probable that a modern instance can be cited wherein a premeditated robbery has been planned and executed with the aid of such a weapon the most thorough search, stimulated by the offer of large rewards, failed to discover any trace of murderer or murderers. The preliminary proofs of loss under the several insurance policies were duly presented when the companies generally denied liability on the ground that the death of Captain Culva Caresses was the result of a settled and deliberate purpose to destroy himself and defraud them. The whole matter soon passed into the hands of counsel, and preparations were made to defend the expected suits at law. Finally, a proposition for negotiations, with a view to an adjustment by compromise, was favorably received and entertained by counsel representing the companies, and resulted in an amicable settlement of the several claims in the manner indicated. End of section 71.